0: <laughs> Sorry to all the Benjamin uh, about enthusiasts, um, but yeah. Okay, I don't know, I feel a little bit out of place here, I have to admit, I'm a bit worried because what I'm going to do is A, a couple of close readings, and B, it's going to take us in away from theory and politics more into the realm of literature, but hopefully it'll still roughly fit into what we've been talking about today. So, one recurrent term in Benjamin's work is the notion of rettung. Rettung can be translated as rescue from imminent danger, or in a more abstract theological sense as salvation, deliverance, or redemption. In Benjamin's work, rettung broadly relates to three aspects of his thought, an epistemological, a theological, and a literary critical dimension. It's a term which recurs across Benjamin's work from the early 1920s right through to the very late texts of 1940. And given that this was a period of crisis for Benjamin on both a political and a personal level, the notion of rettung takes on a certain poignancy. Is rettung particularly in its theological dimension a term which can still be used in the present day for Benjamin? Or does its use in Benjamin's works bring out the aporia, the anachronism which is associated with this idea in modernity? In this limited time I've got today, I'm going to just touch on a handful of examples and I'll focus on two of Benjamin's texts in particular. First of all, Benjamin's essay on Goethe is Die Wahlverwandtschaften, or elective affinities, written in the early 1920s and second, a little novella he wrote a decade later in 1932. Storytelling, I'm going to argue, is a mode which allows Benjamin to explore both the enduring importance and the limits of rettung in modernity in ways which also underpin his later politico-theological models of revolution. So in Jewish and Christian theology, reton, rescue, is synonymous with salvation and redemption. And this meaning is carried through into the historical philosophy of the 18th and 19th centuries, so Lessing, early Romanticism, and so on. It's also then carried all the way, of course, through into the Weimar Republic, which, as we've already heard, saw a revival of messianisms of different kind. Another line of tradition, however, is Rettung as a form of literary criticism. In the Enlightenment, Rettung was the name for a particular form of enlightened critical practice designed to combat prejudice and misunderstanding. The young Lessing, for example, wrote a series of so-called Rettungen in which he criticized the misappropriation of classical writers such as Horace. Benjamin takes his cue from Lessing's project. His essays on literature often have a dual, both critical and ethical charge. Rettung here stands for the project of defending writers or works or genres against neglect, misinterpretation or ideological appropriation. This, for instance, comes to the fore in Benjamin's essays on Hebel and Walser, and in his larger project on Baudelaire, where, as he spells out in his notes, a critical rereading of Baudelaire's poetry must be complemented by an equally critical revision of existing Baudelaire scholarship. And this approach is already at work in Benjamin's professorial dissertation on G- German Baroque tragedy, another neglected genre for Benjamin that he's trying to revive. In his Trauerspielbook, Rettung is contrasted with Würdigung or appreciation, a term which for Benjamin sums up a historicist brand of scholarship which sees the artwork as the product of its times and which by implication, for Benjamin at least, presents the course of history itself as necessary, inevitable, and unchangeable. Benjamin's own agenda, then, is to put past works in a dialectical relationship with the present, to expose their subversive potential and salvage those moments which resonate with the present. But in the Trauerspielbook, Rettung also has a second epistemological dimension, one which Benjamin sums up as the project of a Rettung der Phänomene, a rescue of the phenomena. As he outlines in the epistemocritical preface, the Vorrede, the aim of his own method here is to abstain from generalizing frameworks of ideas which try to subsume the other and the particular. A particular focus of this non-totalizing approach, he argues, are objects, objects which need to be rescued from the grip of instrumentalizing reason. And this is a stance that Benjamin sees embodied in Baroque Trauerspiel, because as he argues, this salvaging, non-totalizing stance is that of the melancholic. he writes, melancholy betrays the world for the sake of knowledge, but its enduring immersion envelops the dead things into its contemplation in order to salvage them. Um sie zu retten. Held by this contemplative, salvaging gaze, objects become disconnected from their everyday use and are instead invested with a new allegorical meaning or mysterious wisdom, rätselhafte Weisheit. And of course, Benjamin's prime example for this gaze is Uller's famous. Engraving Melancholia I, where he sees this melancholy contemplation of the world of objects embodied. But this melancholy, this contemplative gaze which salvages objects by removing them from their everyday use, is by no means the only model of retum that's at work in Benjamin's writings. The Grimm's Dictionary defines the verb retten as the response to, quote, an imminent or actual danger, drohende oder schon hereingebrochene Gefahr. And this notion of sudden lethal danger which features, is, is one which features prominently in Benjamin's materialist thought of the 1930s. But to understand the roots of this materialist historicism or historical materialism, we need to go back to the early 1920s and to Benjamin's essay on Goethe's elective affinities, which was written in 1921 to 1922. In this essay, Benjamin applies his critical method of rettung to Goethe, an author we might think at first is not in need of being rescued. But, in fact, Benjamin turns here against a dominant strand of Goethe criticism, and that's the then-dominant reading of his work by Georgi disciple Friedrich Gundolf. Benjamin rejects Gundolf's reading of the novel, arguing that it ignores both the experience of past suffering inscribed in the novel and its utopian potential. Benjamin's goal, then, is to salvage the true core of the novel from such heroizing interpretations. As he sees it, the novel depicts four people whose lives are blighted and finally destroyed by their belief in the mythical, unfathomable power of fate, Schicksal. Now I'm not going to go into any details about the novel itself. I can say a bit more about it afterwards. But Benjamin's particular twist in his essay, as it were, is to read the novel's plot against that of a novella, so a long, short story, which is told within the novel. This is the novella of Die Wunderlichen Nachbarskinder, or Strange Neighbors, in David Constantine's translation, which is recounted in part two of the novel, where it interrupts the events of the main narrative. Rather than focusing on the destructive power of fate, Benjamin argues, the novella centers on the notion of salvation, Erlösung, which is born out of an act of rescue. So, what about the novella? I will give you a brief plot summary. A boy and girl have grown up as neighbors and they're destined to eventually marry each other. But as they grow up, the girl develops a growing aversion to the boy and so the plan is discarded by their families. The young man goes off to make his career in the army. The young woman stays behind and gets engaged to another man. When her former neighbor returns, a decorated officer, she discovers that she's always loved him and loves him still, but sees no way of reversing her decision. On a boat trip, which her childhood friend has organized for her and her fiance, she decides to drown herself, to punish him for his indifference. At that moment, his beautiful enemy, so that's her, appeared on deck wearing a a wreath of flowers in her hair. Removing the wreath, she flung it at the helmsman. Take this to remember me by, she cried. Get out of my way, he cried, catching the wreath. I need all my strength and concentration. He's taken over the helm at this point. I shall, she cried. You will never see me again. Those were her words. Then she hurried to the bows bows, and jumped into the water. There's no time for the young man to hand over the helm to the old captain. The ship is stranded, and at that moment, throwing off the more encumbering of his clothes, as we're told, he dived into the water and swam after his beautiful enemy. But even though the ship itself is stranded, the water of the river is not, in fact, Dangerous, perilous, but is described as a friendly element Who, for whoever knows it well and is able to manage it. It bore him up, the water, and being a good swimmer, he mastered it. He had soon reached the girl carried away ahead of him. He seized her, raised her, and bore her. Having pulled her out of the river, the young man carries her to the cottage of a young newly married couple, where he strips her of her clothes to keep her warm. As Goethe's narrator comments at this point, here the desire to rescue overpowered any other concern. Hier überwand die Begierde zu retten jede andere Betrachtung. And by this, of course, you mean sexual desire. When she awakes, they are reunited, they declare their love to each other, and they get married there and then, wearing the wedding clothes of the couple that have given them shelter. As husband and wife, they present themselves to their astonished families and ask for their blessing. Now, in the main novel, as you might know, young Ottilie is unable to save Eduard and Charlotte's baby from death by drowning and then perishes herself out of guilt. Against this backdrop, of course, the novella's story of a heroic and successful rescue, which ends in happiness for all, is a strong and poignant counterpart to the plot of elective affinities. So what does Goethe's novella mean for Benjamin's own concept of rettung? Unlike in Baroque drama, Rettung in Goethe's text is not a mental stance, the melancholy contemplation of the world of objects, but an impulsive action driven by a desire to save life, a desire which transcends all selfish motivations. And in this way, Rettung also becomes a key word in Benjamin's own essay. In it, Benjamin speaks of the quote, rescuing correspondences, rettende correspondenzen, through which the tenderly formed novella matches the novel in incomparably clear precision. Yeah, rescuing correspondences in which the novella matches the novel. So Benjamin here applies the motif or term of rescue to our reading of the novel and its novella as a whole. Here we've got a text whose carefully woven internal correspondences set the two texts in relation to each other in ways which open up new perspectives and open up especially this stranglehold of fate that we find in the novel. So in Benjamin's essay, then, Rettung stands for much more than the saving of an individual life. It stands, as the critic Heinrich Kaulen argues, for the hope that the power of myth, the power of fate, can be disrupted, unterbrochen. Even though the novel itself ends disastrously for all its protagonists, Benjamin, in his essay, famously concludes... Only for the sake of the hopeless is hope given to us. This is the rather mysterious closing sentence of his essay. And as we'll see in a minute, this paradoxical notion of hope for the hopeless, hope in the face of hopelessness, is an idea which Benjamin will develop in a different a literary register exactly a decade later. So it's fair to say that compared to his critical writings, Benjamin's literary work has generally received very little attention. The one exception is of course his autobiography, Berliner Kindheit, but the vast majority of his prolific literary output, especially during the later years of the Weimar Republic, when he tried to make a living as a freelance writer, have been rather neglected. But that's a great shame, I think. As I've recently argued, his prose texts serve Benjamin as a space in which to develop theoretical questions and concepts in a different register. And Rettung is one such concept. It's at the center of the novella Das Taschentuch, or The Handkerchief, which Benjamin wrote in the summer of 1932 and which was published in the Frankfurter Zeitung later that year. The narrator of Das Taschentuch is a young naval officer who's serving on an ocean liner returning to Germany from America. On the penultimate day of the journey, he notices that the deck chair usually occupied by a young taciturn woman is empty. Struck by a sense of unease, he looks up to a higher deck and sees her casting lots of papers into the sea. This scene is the precursor for more dramatic events the following day, as the ship is approaching Bremerhaven. This is the narrator speaking, the young naval officer. I was distracted by the sight of the anchor cables being let out. Then suddenly I heard shouts and screams. I turned around and saw that the unknown woman had disappeared. You could tell from the commotion of the crowd that she had fallen overboard. Every effort to rescue her seemed futile. Even if the engine could have been turned off immediately, the stern was not more than three meters from the quay, and its movement was unstoppable. Anyone who came between the ship and the key was lost. The parallels with Goethe's Kinder novella are striking, as are the differences. The two protagonists in Goethe's story are old friends, whereas the woman in Das Taschentuch is referred to by the narrator as the stranger, die fremde, someone whose past and motivations are shrouded in mystery. The shallow river of Goethe's novella has become the Atlantic Ocean, and the ship an ocean liner which embodies the relentless destructive power of technology. What links the two texts, however, is the motif of Rettung. The text declares that in this situation rescue is impossible, aussichtslos, and yet, then the implausible actually happened. There was someone who was willing to make the superhuman effort. You could see him straining every muscle, his eyebrows drawn together as if he were taking aim. Then he leapt over the rail. And while, to the horror of the onlookers, the whole length of the steamer moved to starboard and came to rest against the quay, the rescuer suddenly surfaced with the woman in his arms on the port side, which was so abandoned that at first no one noticed him. He had, in fact, taken aim with his entire weight and borne her down with him under the water and beneath the keel before coming back to the surface. Even more so than Goethe, Benjamin emphasizes the physicality of this leap, the tensing of the muscles, the concentration in his face. As implied by the repeated verb zielen, to take aim, The body becomes an instrument, a kind of weapon in the fight against technology and nature. Rettung here thus has both an instinctive and a deliberate component. The officer takes the plunge despite the hopelessness of the situation and succeeds against the odds. So far so good. But what about the title of this short text? What about the eponymous handkerchief? Well, this little object, in fact, plays a crucial role, not just within this story that I've just summed up to you, but also on a more abstract theoretical level. Benjamin's novella takes the classical form of a ramen novelle, a frame novella. So we've got here a story told within a story. The story of the rescue is recounted to another unnamed first-person narrator by a captain who witnessed this incident when he was himself a young officer. So the captain telling this story with hindsight, so the first-person narrator you've got here, is the captain speaking to the other narrator with this hindsight, looking back several decades. Looking at the excerpts I've shown you so far, we might assume that this young officer is only the witness of this courageous rescue attempt. But in fact, it's only at the end of the novella that we find out that the young officer, our storyteller, is in fact the hero of his own tale. And this connection is established through the object of the handkerchief. The first time the young officer makes contact with the young woman on the deck, it's when he picks up a handkerchief she has dropped. As he returns it to her, he remembers, I heard her say thank you in a tone that suggested I'd just saved her life. This is the next quotation. The rescuing of the handkerchief prefigures the saving of human life. She thanked me as if I'd just saved her life. More importantly, in a kind of chiasmic construction, the actual dramatic moment of rescue is then related back to the handkerchief. The captain relates the story told to him afterwards by the woman's courageous savior. As I held her, he told me later, she whispered, thank you, as if I'd just picked up her handkerchief. So just to clarify, thus far in the story, the voices of the captain slash young officer and the woman savior who is speaking here have remained separate. They're two different voices. It's only right at the end of the story in which the captain has finished recounting this memory that we realize that it was in fact him who happened to be the hero of this rescue. As the captain's ship departs from our first narrator, he has just told his story, our narrator sees him waving the same handkerchief which also featured in the story, and which the beautiful stranger must have obviously given to her saviour after he saved her life. So this twist, this surprise at the end, which in fact is quite typical of Benjamin's little novellas that he published in newspapers in the late 20s and early 30s, this twist is only possible because of Benjamin's cunning use of narrative perspective. So just to remind you then of the passage in question, we've got a movement here from a first-person narrator to an impersonal man or one witnessing this incident. The actual experience of taking the plunge cannot be recounted in its moment as it happens, it seems. So it's at that moment of the leap that the narrative shifts from the eye to a man and is looking on. Tellingly, the only emotion recounted at that moment is the insetzen, the horror of the onlookers, not the emotion of the actual rescuer. What happens under the water is only recounted with hindsight, and the sequence of actions is separated from the main clause by dashes. It's only after they've re-emerged to the surface that the narrative switches back to the first person. But of course with the conceit that someone else is talking at that point. So, the way Rettung is depicted, or perhaps not depicted in this novella, is highly revealing when it comes to assessing its place within Benjamin's thought as a whole. Unlike in Goethe's text, Rettung, here is cast not only as dangerous or heroic but as impossible and yet as something which has to be undertaken nonetheless. This type of rescue seems of course worlds apart from the scenario of rescuing contemplation as Benjamin describes it in his Baroque book and yet there are also some lines of continuity here. And these continuities specifically concern the world of objects. As in Die Wahlverwandtschaften, Rettung here takes on both a literal, a physical, and a more abstract or conceptual dimension. The novella, Das Taschentuch, is only four and a half printed pages long, but the first half is entirely made up of theoretical reflections about storytelling. Specifically, Das Taschentuch very closely anticipates the argument of Benjamin's more famous storyteller essay. As the narrator of Das Taschentuch muses, storytelling has died in modern times, you know the argument, because there's no longer room room for the kind of productive boredom which accompanied traditional crafts such as weaving and spinning. The storyteller had a particular role in these traditional communities. He is, quote, Einer der Ratweis, someone who gives advice. As the narrator adds, in modern times, wir aber wissen von unseren Sorgen, nur zu stöhnen, zu jammern, nicht zu erzählen. So in modern times, we can't narrate our sorrows, we can only groan and moan and complain. Life is full of sorrow and sadness but this needs to be put into words. This, however, is no longer possible because of the death of storytelling. And perhaps the young woman's despair in the story is a symptom of this. She rarely speaks, and before her suicide attempt, she throws sheets of paper into the water. Writing, the story implies, clearly doesn't help in this task of alleviating her pain. As the narrator adds, so all of these comments about storytelling are made by the narrator of the frame narrative, so to speak. So the the same narrator who hears the story told by the captain also reflects on storytelling. As the narrator adds, this crisis of storytelling is also related to a crisis concerning the role of objects in modern life. Another reason that no proper stories can be heard today is that things no longer last the way they should. Anyone who wears a leather belt until it falls to pieces will always find that at some point in the course of time, a story has attached itself to it. So this passage can be related then, or echoes in fact, I think Benjamin's reflections on the rescuing type of attention in his Trauerspiel book. Objects are vital for storytelling, because in the course of their lifetime they become inscribed with stories because they provide a kind of physical basis for storytelling in the modern age. This explains then why the handkerchief plays such a central role in the novella. It's more than a convenient plot device which links the different levels of the narrative because it in fact is also a mysterious, you could say an oratic object in its own right an object worthy, we could say, of sustained contemplation. The narrator describes, declares himself struck by the signs which are embroidered on this handkerchief. So what's embroidered on it is, quote, a tripartite coat of arms with three stars in each field. Ein dreigeteiltes Wappen mit drei Sternen in jedem Feld. So this starred coat of arms, I would say, is a kind of emblem of an older age. Its constellation of stars implies that what's required to unlock the narrative potential or the narrative meaning of this object is not a kind of linear, rational reading, but a thinking quite literally in constellations or in correspondences, the rescuing correspondences of which Benjamin speaks in his Goethe essay. So in the case of Benjamin's work then, the interplay between Goethe's Goethe's novella, his own essay on that text, and his own novella, written 10 years later, is one such moment of rescuing correspondences. At stake here is the attempt to recast one idea, the idea of rettung in the face of hopelessness, which is first developed in relation to Goethe's text in a way which makes it fit for Benjamin's own times. That, in my opinion, is the project as you look across these different texts, to sort of try to update or revive this notion of retum for Benjamin's own times. So with this hypothesis in mind, let's briefly then, as a conclusion, turn to some of the resonances of these configurations for Benjamin's critical project of the 1930s, and in particular his historical and political writings. As Benjamin writes in the notes to his Baudelaire project, rettung must be regarded, quote, as a literary and a political category, unquote. Indeed, indeed, seen in this political light, rescue in Benjamin's work becomes linked to revolution to the project of overturning existing power relations and structures of oppression with the aim of rescuing both the present and the past. In this respect, Rettung is at the heart of Benjamin's theologically theologically inspired model of historical materialism. What's at stake here is the attempt to salvage the scattered remnants of the past, not by immersing oneself in this past, or seeing it in continuity with the present, but on the contrary by emphasizing the rupture between past and present, which allows us to bring past moments into constructive interplay with the present. Another prominent term in Benjamin's later writings is Erlösung, redemption. Redemption for Benjamin is aimed at the non-realized, the unremembered prospects of hope, happiness, and freedom, which are embedded in the past, but also moments of unremembered suffering. The task of the materialist historian is to remember all events, as he writes, whether great or small, so that nothing that ever happened is lost for humanity. As he writes in his last completed work, The Theses on the Concept of History, it's only to a redeemed humanity, erlöste Menschheit, that the past will become available to be cited in all its moments. In jedem ihrer Momente citierbar geworden. So in other words, the project of remembering and commemorating the past also is, is, is phrased here as a project of reading and criticism through this notion of citation. Storytelling, for Benjamin, is central to this project of rescue and remembering. And yet, rescue, rettung, in Benjamin's later texts is always part of a dual movement. A movement, I would argue, of both preservation and critique, of both rettung and destruction. Thereby, rettung, in Benjamin's late writings, continues to play a crucial but also a deeply precarious role. It becomes the response to the present understood as a or constellation of danger, which, as Benjamin writes in the notes to the theses, quote, threatens both that which is being transmitted and the carrier of that tra- tra- tradition. So central for the nexus of politics and theology in Benjamin's later work, is the notion of rescue juxtaposed with the figure of the sprung, or the leap, which we've seen both in Goethe's novella and in Benjamin's own story. In the 13th thesis on the concept of history, Benjamin famously describes the idea of revolution as a tiger's leap into the past, or sprung ins vergangene. And, more specifically in a Marxist sense, as a, quote, leap under the clear sky of history, a sprung unter dem freien Himmel der Geschichte. Here we see echoes of both Goethe's and Benjamin's own tales of miraculous Rettung as that leap, not into history, but into the unknown. Equally significant, though, is the shift between these two narratives of rescue. The shift from the leap of Goethe's young officer into the friendly element, which carries him and his bride to safety, to the impossible scenario of Benjamin's own tale, which turns rettung into a, quote, ungeheuerlichen versuch, or a superhuman effort, requiring the subject to risk his very life. In Benjamin's times, the present is defined as a time of extreme danger, a danger compounded by technology, but ultimately rooted in political crisis. In this situation, his, his story tells us, retum has become impossible, and what, when it happens, it defies all laws of reason and probability. So what are we to make of this impossible model of rescue? It would seem that Benjamin's model of retum applicable, though it may be, to critical projects of history and literature, is ultimately inadequate when it comes to the challenges of his own times. Benjamin's model of rescue is based on individual agency, and this in turn makes it a limited, perhaps a clichéd and outmoded reaction in the face of catastrophes such as war and genocide, and indeed in the face of Benjamin's own experience of exile and persecution. Perhaps Benjamin's own political writings of the late 30s mark a turning away from this personalised individual model of rettung as individual agency. Perhaps these writings mark an attempt to rethink agency, revolution as a matter for the collective. And yet, in images such as The Tiger's Leap Into the Past, as in the religious vocabulary of Benjamin's late writings, there remain resonances of this concrete, physical, individual mode of rescue and its utopian potential. The belief in rettung not because of, but in spite of everything that is the case. For all the differences between Goethe's and Benjamin's novellas, and between his own story and the model of revolution as it's developed in the theses, all three of them are ultimately based on that same leap of faith with which he ends his Wahlverwaltenschaften essay. Only for the sake of the hopeless is hope given to us.